Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Today's podcast is also sponsored by ExpressVPN. If you believe that your data is your business, then secure it yourself. ExpressVPN is a simple app that will secure your privacy and protect your information. So go to ExpressVPN.com slash gold and you can get an extra three months free with a one-year subscription package. Today we had the conclusion of another two-day Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Following the conclusion of the second day, we get the Fed's decision on interest rates. And as expected, the Fed decided once again to leave interest rates at zero. Nobody expected the Fed to raise interest rates. The question was, would the Fed finally announce the beginning of the highly anticipated tapering process And if you look at the odds of the announcement of the taper prior to the meeting, I think it was about an 80% probability that the Fed would announce the taper. There was only a small probability that it would hold off and announce it maybe at the next meeting. So I think the Fed pretty much had a clear signal that the markets had blessed a decision to begin the taper. Because after all, the S&P, the Dow, were sitting at all-time record highs, even though it was pretty much a sure thing that the Fed was going to announce the taper. And I think that's what gave the Fed courage to 
meet those expectations and announce the taper. Now, had the markets been crashing in anticipation of a taper, then I don't think we would have had one. And in fact, had the markets reacted negatively to the news that the Fed was going to start the taper, maybe Powell would have immediately backtracked and done some kind of damage control, either at the press conference that immediately follows the decision, or maybe tomorrow or the next day, to the extent that there is an adverse reaction. Because I think the Fed always takes the temperature of the markets to determine whether or not its policy decisions were correct. If the market goes down, then it's an indication that the policy was a mistake because after all, the Fed is really gearing its policies to the markets and it is completely beholden to what the financial markets do. And so it's not going to pursue any course of action that may be detrimental to the market. Of course, it also cares about the bubble economy and making sure that that doesn't deflate. But the more immediate litmus test is always the market because you can have an immediate adverse reaction to a Fed policy decision. And if you go back and look at what the Fed typically does, if there is an adverse reaction, they quickly try to repair the damage by basically saying, oh, we didn't really mean what we said, or they try to clarify what they claim to have meant once they realize that the markets took it in a way that they didn't anticipate. But the markets were fully prepared for the Fed's announcement, and the Fed did come out and say that it would begin the tapering process. Now, the one thing that may have been a little bit less dovish was that the taper is going to begin this month in November. So they could have said, we're going to start it in December, we're announcing it in November, and the first taper is going to be in December. But no, they're going to start tapering in November, and it's going to be exactly as they described before, $15 billion per month, split between mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, $5 billion per month coming out of the mortgages and $10 billion from treasuries. And the markets basically took the announcement in stride. There was very little reaction in the markets. I mean, they ticked around a little bit. I mean, there was some noise, but the moves, the magnitude of the movement was not that great. I mean, you could see right at two o'clock when the announcement comes out, the markets are gyrating around. So they're a little bit more volatile than they were just before the announcement. But if you actually look at the magnitude of the moves, they were actually very small, especially in relation to some of the volatility that we've seen following prior FOMC decisions. And in fact, the stock markets all closed positive. The Dow was up about 100. That was good for another all-time record high. Same thing with the S&P 500, setting a new all-time record high today. So clearly not worried that the Fed is going to be gradually removing the punch ball from the party, even though they're still spiking the punch ball, right? They're still pouring alcohol into that bowl. The Fed is just saying that they're going to reduce the amount of alcohol they pour into the bowl on a monthly basis, but they're not going to stop pouring it in. That's why I've said repeatedly that tapering is not really tightening. They're still easing. They are still printing money, monetizing government debt. They're just saying they're going to monetize a little less government debt in the coming months than they have been monetizing in the prior months. Of course, Powell did leave the door open to changing 
the pace of the taper because he said it was data dependent. So in other words, it's not set in stone that the Fed is going to continue to taper every month by 15 billion, although right now that supposedly is the Fed's plan. But Powell said that if the incoming data does not warrant a continuation of the taper, well, then the Fed won't continue. So they're data dependent. This is not autopilot like the taper was the last time they did it. It is completely data dependent, which really means market dependent, right? If the markets really start to tank, then the taper is going to be off because it's going to be hard to see the impact on the economy from the taper because the economic consequences may operate with a much bigger lag. Of course, we already have a lot of weakening economic data, although the data that came out this morning and earlier this week on balance was a bit stronger than the markets had expected. But most of the economic data has been weaker. If you look at the economic surprise index sitting at a very low level. So the economy was already slowing down considerably prior to the Fed's decision to begin the taper. And my guess is that it will continue to slow down in the aftermath of the taper. So Powell may in fact use that as an excuse to halt the process. But as I have been saying for many, many months on this podcast, I think the taper is completely priced into the market, not just the beginning of the taper, but the entire process. I think from beginning to end, the impact of tapering quantitative easing to zero has already been fully discounted into the market. So to the extent that the markets go anywhere in the future, it has absolutely nothing to do with the Fed tapering. I think what would surprise the markets and would result in a repricing of various markets would be if the Fed calls off the taper prematurely and is not able to complete the process, which I look at as a likely possibility. I mean, it's not 100% certain. I think it's a very good chance that the Fed never manages to completely taper its QE program. That somewhere before it gets to zero, it pauses. And then rather than resuming the taper, it reverses it and increases the asset purchases again and ultimately gets to a level that's higher than where they originally tapered from. Now, I also think that rate hikes have also been somewhat priced into the market. Even though Powell has gone way out of his way to reassure the markets, and he did so again today, that the conditions for raising interest rates have not been met, right? So we're tapering, but we're not hiking. Hiking is considered liftoff, right? The Fed keeps referring to the first rate hike as being liftoff. And of course, it's kind of appropriate because we're starting from zero. So it's like we're on ground zero and we're talking about lifting off and getting above zero. And Powell made it clear that while we have the correct conditions for a taper, we do not have them for liftoff. And so the Fed has no plans to raise rates. In fact, Powell went out of his way to mention that there were no discussions of rate hikes, that rate hikes would be very premature at this point. This, of course, came up in the Q&A period. In fact, somebody did ask him, one of the people at the press conference, asked Powell about inflation and if Powell might be concerned that the Fed was falling behind the curve waiting so long for the first rate hike. 
and maybe it should raise rates sooner just to make sure, right? Just to get some insurance about inflation being hotter than the Fed thinks. And Powell immediately threw cold water on the idea that the Fed was behind the curve. Powell said emphatically, the Fed is not behind the curve on inflation. And he then went out to say that it would actually be premature for the Fed to raise rates at this time. And he even said that he does not know of anybody who believes that the Fed should be raising rates. Now, of course, that means that Powell doesn't know about me, right? Because I believe the Fed should be raising rates. But, you know, I don't expect Powell to necessarily know about me. But there certainly are a lot of other people who have publicly come out and said that rates should not be at zero, that the Fed should already be raising rates. So for Powell to say that he doesn't even know of anybody that thinks the Fed should be raising rates, I mean, that obviously can't be a true statement. He must have heard uh, somebody say the Fed should be raising rates. He must have read some of the articles that are critical of the Fed's monetary policy. I don't see how he could be in complete isolation and not realize that there is some criticism. Now, maybe no one on the FOMC thinks that they should be raising rates, but that's not the whole world. That's a very small subset. But he didn't qualify his statement to mean that, hey, none of the other FOMC board members think we should be raising rates. He said nobody. He doesn't know of any person alive who thinks the Fed should lift rates above zero, which is completely ridiculous. But also, so is his statement that it would be premature to raise rates at this point in time. Because if you listen to the way Powell described the U.S. economy during the entire press conference, he described a very strong economy with very strong demand. In fact, somebody asked him why the pace of the taper this time was faster than the last time. And he said, well, because we have a much stronger economy now than we did back then, right? We have strong economic growth. We have a strong labor market. We have lots of demand. And he even acknowledged that inflation is well above the 2% target. Well, then given all that, why would it be inappropriate to raise interest rates from zero? Zero is the lowest you can possibly be. That is the rate that is consistent with an economic emergency. Yet Powell is saying that the economy, even though it's really strong, needs interest rates that are set at an emergency level for a comatose economy in a financial crisis. None of that makes sense. The only thing that Powell said that was less than optimal about the current state of the U.S. economy is that we are not at full employment. That's it. I mean, for most of the history of the United States, the U.S. economy has not been at full employment. I mean, full employment is always kind of a subjective term anyway as to what constitutes full employment because there's always a certain level of unemployment. So even an economy that is at full employment doesn't have a 0% unemployment rate. So there's always an unemployment rate in a full employment economy, it's always kind of a judgment call as to what really constitutes full employment. But most economists would agree that full employment is rarely achieved. Maybe we get pretty close, but there's usually room to improve even if the unemployment rate is low. So what Powell is basically saying, under Powellonomics, it is inappropriate to have an interest rate above zero in an economy that is not at full employment. I mean, what kind of asinine 
economic policy, monetary policy is that. To say that the only appropriate interest rate for an economy that is not at full employment is zero? I mean, that doesn't even pass the smell test. The economy is strong. It's just not as strong as it could possibly be and therefore interest rates have to be at zero. It would be inappropriate to raise them at all, meaning that Powell thinks that a 25 basis point hike, if we put interest rates at 25 basis points instead of zero in this really strong economy, it would be a fatal mistake simply because we're not at full employment. I mean, why isn't anybody bringing this up? The absurdity of such a contention. Clearly, Powell does not believe that the economy is as strong as he claims. Because if he really thought we had a strong economy, the Fed would be raising rates. It's only because the Fed knows that the economy is hanging on by a thread, and that thread is 0% interest rates, and to another extent, QE. Obviously, Powell thinks the economy can handle less quantitative easing, but he doesn't believe it can handle a rate hike, which is why he is not delivering one. But to pretend on the one hand that we've got this super strong economy, it's just not quite at full employment. But at the other hand, we can't even raise interest rates above 0% because anything north of zero would be completely inappropriate for this royally strong economy does not make sense at all. You know, when you're running your small business, it's those HR issues that can really kill you. You've got wrongful termination suits, discrimination, sexual harassment, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations. And those HR manager salaries, they ain't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. But that's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M. B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. Now you can get your own dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liability to one of your biggest assets. In fact, your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business and they'll help you manage your employees day-to-day and they'll do it all for just 99 bucks a month. Best part is it's month-to-month, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. And the other thing that doesn't make sense about Powell's assurances is that we don't have to worry about inflation because he repeated many times during the Q&A period that What we're seeing with consumer prices, though it may be painful for some people, that it is all transitory and that it has nothing to do with Fed policy. It simply is a function of supply chain bottlenecks that are associated with the economy reopening. And in fact, many times he spoke about how there's all sorts of demand. We have strong demand. The only problem is we just don't have enough capacity to meet the demand. And therefore, there's nothing to worry about. Well, that is always what happens when you print too much money. When you print money 
and give it to people to spend, demand goes up, right? Because people have more money to spend. But if you don't produce more, well, then you have a shortage. You have supply constraints. I mean, the constraint is always supply. There is never a constraint on demand if it comes from money printing because you can print as much money as you want. For Powell to simply ignore the fact that the demand is coming from his money printing and simply assuming that the capacity is just going to magically appear. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Basically, it's the field of dreams economy. If you print it, it will come, right? If we print enough money to create demand, then the capacity to satisfy that demand is just going to magically materialize somehow. How is that going to happen? I mean, if that really was true, if all you had to do is print money and then the capacity to produce the goods would automatically follow the increase in demand, well, then every country would just print money and nobody would ever have hyperinflation because there would just be enough supply to meet any demand created by money printing. The reality is anytime you print too much money, you can always claim that there is a capacity shortage, a supply shortage. I mean, think about it again rationally. If the Federal Reserve gave every American a million dollars today, just mail the check for a million dollars to every single American, we have incredible demand. Everybody would immediately be online buying everything under the sun, right? They would put in orders, they'd overrun Amazon, they'd run out to the car dealership. I mean, they would try to buy everything. Everybody would be a millionaire. They'd want everything, right? But there'd be nothing to buy because there's nothing that has been produced. So everybody would be complaining, oh, we're out of stock, we ran out, there's no capacity. Of course, because the demand didn't come from supply. Supply is supposed to create demand. That's how it works. It's the production of goods and services that enables the demand. If you put the cart before the horse, if you just give people a bunch of money to demand stuff that hasn't been produced, well, it doesn't work. Prices have to skyrocket. Now you can say, oh, prices are skyrocketing because we don't have the capacity. We don't have the supply. Of course, we don't have the supply. There is a limit to how much the economy can produce. And you can't simply say, well, we're just going to wait it out because we're eventually going to have it. That's the same nonsense that I talked about with respect to the Soviet Union, what the Soviet Union was telling their people to explain why American shells were loaded up with stuff and the Soviet shelves were empty. They said it was because the Americans were too poor and they couldn't afford to buy the stuff that was on the shelves, but the Russians were so rich that the minute there was a product on the shelf, somebody rushed to buy it, and that's why it wasn't there. But also, one of the things that the Russian government or the Soviets used to tell their people was that they thought that the American problem was worse because the Americans would never actually have enough money to afford all the stuff, but that the Soviets would eventually have enough stuff to go along with all the money, right? Because everybody in the Soviet Union had lots of money. There just wasn't anything to buy. Whereas everybody in America had lots of stuff to buy, but no money to buy it with. And so 
the Soviets said that the Americans will never have enough money to buy all that stuff, so it's going to sit on the shelves indefinitely, but eventually the Russians will have enough stuff to go with all the money, which is all BS, because the easy part is to print the money. The hard part is to produce the stuff. And in a communist economy, you don't have any stuff. It's only in a free market economy that stuff is produced. But here you have the chairman of the Federal Reserve basically spoon-feeding the American public the same type of propaganda that the Soviet Union was feeding their citizens, and they expect us to swallow it. And by and large, the media does, Wall Street does. Oh, yeah, sure, everything is fine. We're just going to magically have the capacity to meet all this demand. No, we're not. (laughs) And so this inflation is anything but transitory. The demand is going to be there because the Fed ain't going to stop printing money. But the supply won't be there. The capacity won't be there. And so prices are going to keep going up. And contrary to what Powell is reassuring everybody, the Fed is already way behind the inflation curve. And they're going to fall further and further behind as they continue on this taper timetable because they're still throwing gasoline on the fire. Even if they're throwing less gasoline, they're still throwing it on. And so inflation is going to get worse and worse. And so by the time the Fed actually completes the taper process, if it ever completes that process, it will be even further behind the inflation curve than it is right now. The question is, will the Fed raise rates? Well, by the time the Fed finishes the taper, chances are we're in a much bigger bubble than the one we're in right now. The stock market could be a lot higher than it is right now. In fact, I just read that it's now been a year since the election of Joe Biden. And during this year, the S&P 500 is up 37%. Now, this is a record. There has never been a point in time in U.S. history where the U.S. market has gone up this much in a one-year period following a presidential election. Now, if you remember... Donald Trump was very excited about how much the market went up following his election. And so whenever anybody talked about how much the market went up during the Trump presidency, he always wanted to say, no, 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 we can't start the countdown from when I became president. We have to start from the day I was elected president because he always wanted to claim credit for the gains that happened between his election and his inauguration because he said that was the market getting all excited about Trump being elected. And so he wanted to claim credit for those pre-inaugural gains. Well, Biden has actually done one better than Trump. And if you remember too, one of the warnings that Donald Trump had for the nation about Biden was that if you elected Biden, the stock market was going to crash. That was a big selling point because he pointed to the big gains in the stock market and he said, hey, if you want those gains to continue, you got to reelect me because if Biden gets elected, the market's going to completely crash and we're all going to be broke. So if you're going to vote your pocketbook, vote for me because I'm the reason that your stock market is up, your 401k is up and you better reelect me. Otherwise, we're going to have a complete market meltdown. Well, Trump was completely wrong. The stock market did better under Biden than it did under Trump during that first year since the election. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Trump was wrong about Biden being a bad choice. He was right about that. He was just wrong to assume that the reason the stock market went up was because he was president and he was cutting taxes and that if Biden was president and raising taxes, the market would go down. It doesn't matter who the president is. It matters who the chairman of the Federal Reserve is. And the chairman is still Powell and he's uber dove. And he is the reason that the market went up under Trump, although not just Powell. You had the rest of the cronies on the FOMC. But it's the Federal Reserve, not the White House, not Congress, that is the principal driver of the stock market train. And the reason we're at record highs has nothing to do with Biden's policies. It had nothing to do really with Trump's policies. It has everything to do with the Fed policies which is just more proof that we are in a massive bubble because the markets don't really care about the fiscal policy. They don't really care about tax rates. They're just looking at interest rates and they're zero. And they're looking at the Fed's balance sheet. And investors are simply looking at momentum. They're not looking at fundamentals. So by the time the Fed gets around to potentially considering raising interest rates, it's going to be dealing with a much bigger bubble which means it's that much less likely to actually pull the trigger on raising rates. The same thing with debt. The national debt is almost $29 trillion. We're about $60 billion away from $29 trillion. Probably if the Fed manages to completely taper QE, the national debt will be above $30 trillion at that time. And also, currently, the Fed's balance sheet is a little over eight and a half trillion dollars, probably be closer to nine trillion by the time they finish the taper because they're still going to be adding to the balance sheet quite a bit between now and the time that they finish the taper. So if we have more national debt, if the Fed has an even larger balance sheet, then the impact of higher interest rates will be even greater when they raise them later rather than raising them right now when their debts are smaller. But that is the real reason why the Fed doesn't want to raise rates. It's because of the burden that higher interest payments would place on an over-leveraged economy. Powell has to know that the reason that the economy appears to be growing, the reason that people are getting jobs is because everybody is spending money. And why is everybody spending money? Apart from the fact that the Fed is creating the money, it's the fact that the Fed is artificially suppressing interest rates because so much of the spending is a function of credit and debt. And also to the extent that a lot of the spending is a byproduct of the wealth effect, the only reason that so many Americans have so much wealth is because interest rates are so low, artificially elevating asset prices. So this entire bubble economy is on life support from the Fed. The Fed is certainly not going to pull the plug, especially when it's more dependent than ever on that support, which it will be if it ever gets around to completing the taper of its asset purchase program. How did you choose your internet service provider? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They use their monopoly power to take advantage of customers, data caps, 
streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell the data to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my online activity, I protect my devices with ExpressVPN. So what's ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP can't see any of your activities. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, the list of people you've messaged, the sites you visited, and the videos you watch gets tracked by the tech giants who can sell your information for a profit. That's one of the reasons I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to keep your data private because your online activity is nobody's business but your own. So just download the app, tap on one button on your device, and you're protected. And in fact, an added benefit, especially for me living in Puerto Rico, is oftentimes a lot of the content that I want to access is not available in this location. But using ExpressVPN, the providers of that information don't realize I'm in Puerto Rico. I may be using the VPN in Florida, and therefore I get access to lots of content that otherwise would be unavailable to me. And don't worry, ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell the information. And more important, keep your information from the prying eyes of government bureaucrats who will use that information potentially in ways that will be detrimental to your individual liberty and your freedom. So protect yourself with a VPN I trust to keep my data private, expressvpn.com slash gold. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash gold to get three extra months free. Again, go to expressvpn.com slash gold right now to learn more. And another thing that is going to complicate the Fed's ability to raise interest rates, in fact, that's going to make it very difficult for the Fed to finish the taper, is going to be the passage of the infrastructure bill, the passage of that other $1.75 trillion spending bill. So you're looking at a combination of, what, two and a quarter, two and a half trillion of budgeted spending, obviously much more in reality. But that legislation is likely to be passed, especially if you look at the results of yesterday's elections. I mean, we know the results for the Virginia election. I mean, it was pretty much expected that the Republican would upset the former Democratic governor, and that's exactly what happened. Although earlier in the year, it would have been a shoo-in. I mean, nobody would have believed that a Republican would win the election in Virginia. After all, a Republican had not won a statewide election in Virginia since 2009, and Biden won the state by double digits. So that election was a year ago, and Biden won by double digits, and a Republican defeated a former Democratic governor trying to re-enter the governor's mansion, and he wasn't able to do it. And why is that? Why do so many people who voted for Biden have buyer's remorse? And that's because the economy stinks. Despite the fact that Powell wants to claim it's so great, average people who are dealing with the consequences of the cost of living rising much faster than their incomes, inflation is the problem. In fact, one third of the voters 
said that the economy was the number one issue. Now, the economy is only the number one issue in an election when it's bad, right? When the economy is good, no one worries about the economy. So then they focus on other things. When people are voting the economy, it's because the economy is a problem. And so despite all these rosy numbers, the economy is no good because of inflation. And if inflation is going to get worse, well, then so is the economy. And so the Democrats know that their grip on power has a short shelf life because it's pretty clear that the Republicans will take back at least one, if not both houses of Congress, and then they will have no ability to get anything done. So I think given that, the Democrats are going to somehow get their act together. They're going to pull in the far left and some of the moderates, and they're going to get some stuff passed because they may feel that's the only way to get some of their people reelected is to show some progress, to show some victories. Biden needs to sign some type of legislation that these Democrats who are up for reelection in 2022 can claim credit for. So something is going to happen between now and the time that the Fed, in theory, can completely taper its asset purchases, meaning the budget deficits are going to be much bigger. And that means government is going to need even more help in financing those deficits. And as the national debt is bigger and bigger, if interest rates actually go up, then that really compounds the problem by adding enormously to the cost of funding the debt. And that means those higher interest payments also add to the exploding budget deficits. So rate hikes are not going to come. But getting back to what I said earlier about the markets having already priced in the taper, I think they've already priced in a liftoff. I'm not sure how many rate hikes they've priced in, but I think it is generally accepted that at some point after the Fed finishes the taper, they will start hiking rates. And I think at least the beginning of that rate hiking cycle is also factored into the markets, which means what's really going to surprise the markets is going to be when the Fed cancels the taper prematurely. And obviously, if the Fed has to reverse on QE, then everybody's going to have to realize that no rate hikes are coming. Because if the Fed has to go back on the taper, and if the Fed feels that it has to do more quantitative easing rather than less, well, then clearly, if it had any plans to raise interest rates, it would have torn up those plans the minute it called off the taper. And so I think all of that is going to have to be priced out of the markets. And I think where you're going to see the biggest reaction is going to be in the dollar and in the gold market. And in fact, the dollar index was down today, which again shows you that I was correct about the taper being priced in because we got the taper and the dollar went down. Pretty much all the currencies were up today. And normally, if you're going to get tighter monetary policy, it's perceived as being bullish for the dollar. Well, I think the dollar already got all that's going to get from the taper. We talked about the taper for so long that the taper itself had been priced in. And we may, in fact, even get a buy the rumor, sell the fact where the dollar may start falling now that we've actually had the announcement of the taper. Now, the opposite would be true in the gold market. Gold should rally now that we have a buy the rumor, sell the fact. And in fact, gold did rally once the decision was announced. Because prior to this afternoon's decision by the Fed in the morning, gold was down about 20, 25 bucks. 
So gold had reacted to some of the stronger economic data and it was bracing for the Fed to come out and announce the taper. And when the Fed did announce the taper, we actually got a bit of a rally in the gold market. Now, gold didn't go positive on the day, but it did rally off those lows. I think it settled down about $18. Silver had an even bigger reversal because it was down about 40 or 50 cents before the announcement of the taper. And it actually erased all those losses and managed to eke out, I think, a one cent gain. And we also had a pretty good reversal in the mining stocks. The GDX was down about one and a half percent, I think, before the announcement or earlier this morning. It ended up plus one percent on the day. And the junior miners, GDXJ, that was down about two percent, I think. It ended up finishing up one and a half percent. So certainly buy the rumors, sell the fact in the gold and silver mining stocks. So I don't see that there's any more negative news out there from the Fed when it comes to gold or any positive news on the dollar because the Fed has already said it's going to taper, it's going to do $15 billion a month, and the markets have already priced that in. So even if the Fed continues to deliver on that promise, it should not be a headwind for gold and it should not be a tailwind for the dollar, I think now investors have to start pricing in what's next. And I think what's next is going to be the realization that inflation isn't transitory, that it's here to stay, that it's going to get worse, that the Fed is already behind the curve, and it's going to fall further and further behind the curve. And there's nothing that's politically viable for them to do to ever bend that curve, to ever get out in front of the inflation curve, which is what you would need to do to bend it. And so when people realize that inflation is now an economic reality, it is going to be a big eye-opening moment in the market. And another market that's going to be very affected is going to be the bond market. I mean, look at treasury bond yields. You're still below 1.6 on the 10-year. You're still below 2% on the 30-year. These are completely irrational yields. They're only this low because of intervention, artificial manipulation by the Federal Reserve. And if the Fed is in fact going to reduce its QE program, that means there is less demand for bonds coming from the Treasury. Why wouldn't prices collapse? Because there should be no demand coming from the private sector. Because what idiot is going to lend money to the U.S. government for 30 years at less than 2%? Nobody is that dumb. So the only people who are going to buy these bonds are people who don't care about what happens to their money. And obviously, that's the Federal Reserve because they can create as much of it as they want. So what difference does it make to them? But when you're talking about private sector demand, people who are making loans want to get their money back. More importantly, they want to get their purchasing power back. And there's no way you're going to get your purchasing power back making these ridiculously low interest rate loans in this high inflation environment. I mean, even if the Fed succeeds in bringing the inflation rate back down near 2%, you're still getting negative yields on a 10-year bond at 1.6%. Of course, one of the other markets that is particularly vulnerable to a resetting of interest rates is the housing market. And I've talked about the housing market on this podcast for quite some time. But in particular, I want to talk about what's going on with shares of Zillow. Because I talked a lot about Zillow on the podcast about a month ago because I had read a news story about the number of homes that were listed for sale 
that were owned by Zillow. And the fact that a lot of these homes that Zillow was trying to sell, they had been reducing the price and that some of the homes were already being offered at prices that were lower than what Zillow paid. And of course, you could see the history of the transactions on Zillow itself, right? Because Zillow lists all of the prior transactions. So you can see at what price a piece of real estate, a house sold at in the past. And in this case, Zillow had actually been the buyer because they had started this home flipping business, uh, Zillow Offers, where Zillow was going in and actually buying real estate and then turning around and relisting it. And when I first learned about the fact that this glut was building, I went out of my way on the podcast to talk about the ridiculousness of this business model, how it was a complete disaster and Zillow was going to lose a lot of money. And I went and explained why. And I talked about all the flaws in this business where supposedly they were buying houses slightly below market, just putting a little finishing touches on them, maybe a little bit more paint, fix a little bit, and then immediately putting them for sale at market and trying to make that spread. And supposedly they had some kind of algorithm that could calculate what the house should be worth. And so they were going to buy it below market. And I described how this was impossible to know based on some kind of algorithm because houses are all unique and very different from one another. And, you know, it's really hard to say what a house is worth, especially if you're buying it sight unseen. Now, they were sending, I think, some inspectors out to take some pictures, but even that isn't going to do it justice. And if you think about it this way, if Zillow was trying to figure out what the average house should be selling for in a particular market, maybe the algorithm looked at the zip code where the house was and how many square feet, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, all these statistics, and then tried to figure out what the house should be worth based on comparable sales of similar type properties based on all these statistics. The statistics don't tell the whole story. I mean, think about a situation where there's two houses. And let's say one house is a $220,000 house and another house is a $180,000 house, right? And let's say they're both the same square foot, number of bedrooms, bathrooms. Statistically, they look the same, but obviously there's some differences if you actually went down to the home and understood the neighborhood. One has some aspects to it that make it more desirable than this other house. But if you just look at them and you say, hey, what is the average price of these houses? Well, the average price is $200,000, right? So what if Zillow's model says, okay, the average home should be $200,000. And so it decides it's going to try to buy a house for $190,000. Well, the guy who's got the $220,000 house, he's not going to hit that $190,000 bid, right? He won't sell to Zillow because his house is actually better than average and he can get more than average if he just sells it in the market. Whereas the guy that's got the $180,000 house, sure, he's going to sell it to Zillow at $190,000 because he can only get $180,000. So for him, Zillow's the top bidder. Even though Zillow thinks it's getting a deal, Zillow thinks, hey, I'm buying a house for $190,000. The average should be $200,000 according to our computers. So we're getting a deal. You're not getting a deal. You're, we're getting a lemon because the homeowner has a choice. Sell it to a traditional buyer who actually wants the house or hit the bid by Zillow. Well, the only people that are going to hit the Zillow bid 
are the people who can't get a higher price from a traditional buyer. Well, if the initial owner can't get a higher price and so he throws in the towel and hits the Zillow bid, why does Zillow think that it's going to succeed where the prior owner failed? I mean, the whole thing seemed moronic to me. And also, given the fact that they were not looking to buy real fixer-uppers where they were going to put a lot of work into the property and then resell it, they were just trying to pretty much buy it as is and just put a couple of finishing touches on, minimal work, just to you know improve the curb appeal. I mean, chances are the guy who already owns the house might have tried that first. And then because he couldn't find any buyers, he decided to just sell it to Zillow because Zillow was dumb enough to pay more than anybody else was willing to pay. But I thought given that they weren't looking to make a lot of money on each house, but thinking about the enormity of the risk that they were taking, you know, there's an old Wall Street expression, don't pick up pennies in front of steamrollers, right? Because you're looking to get something that doesn't have a lot of value, but you risk getting killed by the steamroller, right? So it's not worth it. Just leave the penny alone. And that's what it seemed like they were doing. They were looking to pick up pennies in front of steamrollers. Well, they just got steamrolled because yesterday Zillow made a follow-up announcement. Now they announced a couple of weeks ago, again, and this is after I had my long discussion on my podcast about the incredible flaws in this home flipping business model. Well, Zillow came out with a little bit of a warning and they said, because we have such a glut now of unsold homes, we're going to temporarily halt our home flipping business until we can work off some of this excess inventory, I guess in which case they would go back to business, right? Once they sold all the houses that they can't sell, then they would be in a position to buy some more. So they didn't say we were exiting the business. They said we were just temporarily pausing the business. Well, yesterday they made that temporary pause permanent and Zillow announced that it was completely exiting the home flipping business. I forget it was going to take maybe like 500 million. I forget the exact amount of the charge, but a huge write down for a loss. And they were going to fire 25% of their employees. I guess all the employees that were somehow related to this division, I guess they're all gone. And so now they're going to go back to their traditional business. And in fact, on my podcast, I remember the day that Zillow announced they were going to do this. I had the same criticism. I said, this is a ridiculous business plan. It's not going to work. The thing is, the price of Zillow stock today, even though it dropped 24% on the day, right? It's about $65 a share. It was as high as 208 this year. Back in March, this stock was at 208. So it's at 65. But if you look at where the stock was when they initially announced that they were getting into the home flipping business, I think it was still below $50 a share. So if you shorted the stock the day they made this asinine decision, you're actually still losing money. If you were dumb enough to buy the stock because you thought this was a good idea, even though they just exited the business and admitted it was a massive mistake, you can sell the stock and make a profit, which you know obviously shows you how difficult it can be sometimes because you can be right and know that Zillow is making a mistake, but the market doesn't know that. And so you can be right, 
but lose money. A lot of people who bought Zillow back then were wrong, but they made money. Now, of course, Zillow was a great short if you shorted it when I talked about it a month ago. Once the problems started to manifest themselves in a way that should have been obvious. What's amazing to me is how many people were still clueless about the problem with this model even after Zillow warned about it. Because I read today that Kathy Wood, right, very famous investor, she's in these ARK funds. She buys all the overpriced high-tech stocks and everybody thinks she's a genius, you know, because all the stocks that she owned have gone way up. Of course, she's not smart. Again, there's another Wall Street expression, don't confuse brains with a bull market. And in this case, it's not just a bull market, it's a bubble. And so you definitely don't want to confuse brains for a bubble because it's an even bigger mistake than if it's a normal bull market. Any fool could make money in a bubble if they just buy all the bubble assets. And that's exactly what Kathy Wood is proving. And to prove how much of a fool she is, even after Zillow came out and said, we are pausing this home flipping business because we have all this unsold inventory. She went out and bought a lot more shares of the stock for her fund. So she went to the buy the dip mentality without even understanding the implications of that warning. Didn't really understand the business model or how bad this is. She just saw that the price of one of her beloved stocks had gone down. And so she just reflexively bought the dip. Well, the same thing is going to happen with all the other positions that she has fallen in love with. And everybody thinks she's so brilliant because she bought them. She is going to average all the way down, right? These stocks are going to crash one day. They're going to keep on going down and she's going to keep on buying until she runs out of money. And eventually her shareholders are going to run out of patience and they're going to want what's left of their money back, which means she's going to eventually be forced to dump these shares at a much, much lower price because... If you look at what's actually going on, either interest rates are going up or inflation is going up, right? Those are the only two possibilities. Either the Fed is going to start aggressively raising interest rates to fight inflation, or they're going to keep interest rates at zero and inflation is going to win the fight. But either way, big increase in interest rates, big increase in inflation, the stocks that will get hit the hardest as a result of that are the high P.E. momentum type stocks that comprise pretty much all of the portfolio of these ARK innovation, whatever funds that Kathy Woods is managing. And in fact, a lot of investors' portfolios who have been investing through the bubble, these are the stocks that they own. And either high inflation or high interest rates will crush those stocks. The money is going to come out once the environment that made this bubble possible no longer exists. When we have real inflation that investors finally understand is here to stay, then either the Fed raises interest rates significantly and the markets crash, or it doesn't raise interest rates and the high multiple stocks crash in relation to the value stocks. Because in an inflationary environment, you don't want to buy on the come. You don't want to buy the prospect of earnings 25, 50, 100 years in the future. You don't have that kind of time anymore when you no longer have 0% rates in a non-inflationary or low inflationary environment. If you have real inflation and you can't get a real rate of interest 
to stay above inflation, then you have to buy assets that have earnings right now that can keep you ahead of inflation. Not earnings in the future, but earnings in the present. And you have to have businesses with pricing power. You can't have businesses that have no prices because they give away their products. You have to invest in businesses that have the ability to pass on rising costs to the consumer in the form of rising prices. And you want to own businesses that have real assets that will keep pace with inflation. They have real plant and equipment. They have real resources, not just paper, not just assets that people are valuing based on some multiple of revenue, even though the business itself is operating at a loss and they don't really have a lot of actual tangible assets on their books. It's all just a bunch of hype. And the investors are still clueless to this reality because they're still buying those kind of stocks. I mean, the NASDAQ also hit a new record high today. Look at Tesla. Tesla, again, up another 3% at 1,213. This is just a one-way street. This stock has been going up and up and up. Again, the catalyst was that order from Hertz, but that 100,000 car order is nothing. The stock has gained many, many multiples of the value of the revenue of that order, let alone whatever the profit is. So the market remains completely oblivious to the economic reality. But I think now that the Fed has finally delivered on the taper promise, it's never going to deliver on the rate hike promise. So forget about that. But I've always said that they could potentially do the taper. The difficult part is not starting the taper, but completing the process. But I think now that we've gotten it out of the way, investors are going to have to look for something else to worry about. And instead of worrying about the taper, they're going to worry that it's too little too late. They're going to worry that the Fed is behind the curve. They're going to worry that it's never going to catch up. And I think you're going to start to see more and more money moving into the real inflation hedges, which would be stocks that have real tangible assets, real earnings now, real dividends now, and of course, the mining stocks, gold and silver stocks, because if this is it, if the Fed basically started the taper and we didn't see a sell-off in gold, we didn't see a sell-off in silver because all that taper has been fully priced in to the gold and silver market. Well, if the markets aren't going down, they're going up. And if they're going up, they're going way up. And once investors realize that that's the direction of the market, they're going to pile in. There won't be a lot of sellers. There'll be a lot of new buyers. And so the prices could really start to move up. Maybe it'll be slow at first, but it's going to gradually build up momentum. And then this thing is going to take off. And my final Wall Street adage has to do with trying to jump aboard a moving train. Rather than trying to jump on board a train that's moving fast, why not get on before it leaves the station? And as far as I'm concerned, the gold and silver train has been stuck on the station for a long time, but it's not going to be there indefinitely. I think it's going to leave soon and before it does, climb on board.